So when I was 10 years old, I enjoy stories, so I'm going to tell a story. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I uh, was at a friend's house with my brothers, and uh, my friend had some airsoft guns, and you know, I'm 10, so I like playing with stuff like that. So we all decided we're going to go grab these airsoft guns and you know, shoot leaves outside or whatever. So we grabbed the stuff, me and my two older brothers and our friend. Uh, we're walking out. I had never really played with them, so I didn't, you know, all you, all you have messed with guns and you know, like, safety procedures and all, I didn't know any of that. I was just, like, you know, waving it around probably. But uh, so we get out there, and I noticed we weren't wearing, like, eyeglass stuff, so I realized, okay, I think the assumption is we're not going to be shooting each other. We're going to be shooting, like, leaves and trees and stuff like that. Um, but 10-year-old me kind of kicked in to gear. Uh, I don't know what came over me. Maybe it's just a lack of self-control. But I found myself pointing the airsoft gun. These are plastic BBs, not metal, just so you know. I feel like I need to clarify. Um, I was pointing the gun at my brother's head, and he was pretty far away. I was like, surely I'll, I won't hit him. Uh, but I pulled the trigger. I don't know what I was doing, and I did it. And unfortunately, for the first time ever, I hit what I was aiming for, which was my brother's head. Uh, praise God it wasn't his eye. I think we, it wouldn't be a funny story to tell if it was because he might be blind. But um, thankfully he is not. I hit him right here above the eye, about an inch above the eye, and immediately I just ran towards him, profusely apologizing. He's holding his face. I can see it's kind of getting that, that welt that's swelling up. And, and I'm, I'm apologizing. I'm saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then I start to do, it just intuitively came to me, and I started saying things like, um, I'll do your chores for a whole month. I'll, I'll make your bed for a whole week. Uh, I'll, I'll, I don't know what I said, but it probably said something along the lines like, I'll let you play with my favorite action figure for as long as you want. You can have it. Just don't tell mom and dad. Please don't tell mom and dad. I'm going to get in so much trouble if you do. I think similarly, um, when we sin or when our conscience starts to weigh on us and wear us down, we come to a point, um, and praise God for the, the Holy Spirit and God's word and, and, and friends in the congregation that can call us out, we come to a point where we realize, I have sin in my life, it's unconfessed and I need to repent. And, and if you've been here, you repent and you do that. I, I also I find myself, maybe I'm not the only one here, but I find myself doing something after asking God, will you forgive me of my sin? Um, I find myself making commitments. Maybe I don't verbalize them out loud, but I find myself doing it in my head. I make these commitments like, God, I'm going to resolve to read your word daily. I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm going to spend time in prayer in your word first thing in the morning. I'm going to do it every single day. Um, God, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to commit all these different things to you. Um, I'm going to uh, come to church more often. And when I come to church, I'm going to bring my Bible. I'm going to tithe. I'm going to tithe 10%. I'll tithe 11% even for good measure. And I, I really think this is indicative of uh, a contrite heart, a heart that actually is repentant of what it does, um, because we realize we're in need of God's forgiveness. But with that comes this question that I've always kind of had in the back of my head. And, and reading through this passage, it came back up. And I realized as in confessing of sin and then committing these certain things or resolving to be different or do a certain thing 
better next time, this question comes up in my head, is that what God truly wants? Is that what God truly desires of me? And I'll have you ask the same question to yourself, is, is that in your way, in your process of asking for forgiveness for God, uh, and is, that his, is that what he desires for you? Because then the question that follows that one in my head is, if I make these commitments, I know myself, you know yourself, if I make these promises that I'll never do it again, God, I may not be able to come through on that. I don't want to lie to God. He knows my heart. He knows my thoughts. I don't want to do that. I may not be able to fulfill what I promised and what I've committed. Do you guys ever find yourself doing that? You have this dialogue in your head, like maybe I shouldn't even make any commitments at all. I'll just repent of my sin and, and that's, that's it. I'm not going to state it out loud. God, I'm going to read your word. I, I'm not going to make any New Year's resolutions to read. You know, I'm not going to do any 90-day read-through because then I might not come through on that. So then you never make commitments. One more story. I, uh, my parents are Bible teachers and they were missionaries. So I grew up uh, with a lot of Christians around. I was Christian since I was uh, young and uh, a lot of Christian friends around. So the Christian community, I mean, when you're in it, you don't think it's weird, but like, if you really look at it, like, we do some interesting things. Like, we go on retreats all the time, uh, which is great. It's really fun. Uh, basically, it's just a time to hang out with our friends, but we, at, growing up, I always went to retreats, tons of retreats, little Bible camp retreats, um, youth group retreats, church, whole church retreats, and in and, and these retreats, especially with the youth retreats, uh, something interesting always happened. Um, if there was ever a campfire, and it was maybe the last night of the retreat, right? Um, God's word had been preached all week long. There's some conviction in your heart. I need to change. I need to maybe rededicate my life to Christ or something. And your head is going, I think God's word is working in your heart at that point. And, and what happened to me is I would find myself at the end, we're at a campfire, I was there with some high school friends, we're at a campfire, and um, someone starts singing some worship songs, and you can kind of tell the vibe is, is it's kind of emotional, and my friends told me, they're like, hey, this is, they, they thought it was funny, but it was kind of interesting to me. They said, hey, every single year, you know, I know this is your first year here, Will, but every single year when we come to this campfire, at the end of this retreat, someone will cry. Someone will get up, and they'll confess their sin, and they'll uh, make commitments to God and they'll cry and they'll weep. And th they thought the crying part was funny, but what I thought was intriguing is kind of the, the action that followed a time and a period of being under God's word. This commitment, resolving I'm going to be a certain way after spending time in prayer and God's word, under God's teaching. I thought it was interesting. So I sat there on the bench and I watched a girl Stand up. She told her testimony. She was a senior in high school. Um, she was graduating really soon, and she, like a lot of us, she didn't really know exactly what she wanted to do, where she was going to go. Uh, it was a little ambiguous what was going to happen next in her life, and she just said, I just want to, I just want to be in God's word more. I just want to commit my life to him. I want to live for him with my life. I don't know what that looks like, but I, I want to do that. It was a, it was a, I mean, she was crying because it was really, a, I think, a breaking period after she had spent time under God's teaching in his word. To me, it was intriguing, and it was kind of beautiful. My friends thought it was funny that everyone cried each year, but I thought it was interesting. 
And so it comes back to that one question. I mean, was it okay that I just sat there and didn't make any commitments myself? Or was I supposed to be that person standing up and making commitments in front of others, strangers I didn't really know? What does God truly desire of me and you in this scenario? So let's, let's find out. Let's go ahead and jump into our text. If you have your Bibles, uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 is where we're at. I know it would be awkward to get up and right now. I wouldn't think it's awkward, but for future reference, we have Bibles in the back um, in the Welcome Center area. So if you walk in and you forgot your Bible, uh, feel free to go grab one and, and come in and follow along as we read. That's A-OK. A-OK with me. Um, so a little background. Last week, uh, somehow Chris was able to sum up three chapters of Nehemiah flawlessly and kind of give us the rundown of what happened through. So seven, eight, and nine were the chapters leading up to what we're teaching on today. And, and kind of a summary of what happened, God's people, uh, in chapter eight, it says they sat under the teaching of God's law for hours. They stood and listened and listened and listened and reflected and contemplated on God's commands, on the word of God. And in chapter nine, we see that they become aware of their need and they repent. There's this sense of revival. They recommit their lives to the Lord. And here's where we pick up. Let's go ahead and read, uh, read with me chapter 9, starting verse 34, 35, and we'll jump to 38 before we head into chapter 10. Chapter 9, verse 34. Our kings and leaders and priests and ancestors did not obey our law or listen to the warnings in your commands and laws. Even while they had their own kingdom, they did not serve you, though you showered your goodness on them. You gave them a large fertile land, but they refused to turn from their wickedness. And verse 38 the people responded, in view of all this, we are making a solemn promise, putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. Now, for comedic purposes, I could try to pronounce uh, these names in the next 27 verses. And you guys would think it's funny, and I would struggle. Uh, we're not going to read those. I can't pronounce them, but I want to draw your attention. The first uh, section, we have Nehemiah, who we know, the, the governor. The second section of people who are making this solemn vow, this solemn promise, and their names are written here, are the priests, followed by the Levites, followed by the leaders. And we pick up here in verse 28. These names are listed out. They're making a serious commitment. Uh, let, let me go ahead and just put up on the slide our outline uh, kind of for this passage or, or how I see it outlined. So looking at verses 28 through 29, then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God, if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly promised 
to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. I want to pause there for a moment to reflect on really what an incredible commitment this is. This is no joke. Okay, so this oath and this curse, when I was reading this first through, I was kind of intrigued because those are interesting words maybe we don't see all the time. And I wanted to know what, why, why is it that, what is, this, what is this curse that they would put on themselves that they may follow this oath? It's interesting, as, as I read some commentaries about it, basically what they're doing is they're calling upon themselves, they're encanting on themselves judgment and disaster should they waver from God's commands, should they waver from this oath that they are signing. But the part that intrigued me um, that I thought was it's crazy is not just, it's not just the men of the household or the, or the parents of the household, the men and the women. Children, too. This oath is on all of them. This is a community affair, community commitment. Look at what it says. Join their leaders and bound themselves uh, with an oath. Wives, sons, daughters, all who are old enough to understand. If I'm thinking old enough to understand, I'm thinking young people, very young people, would be old enough to understand what this is. So not only are they making this commitment uh, as adults, they're whole families, as a whole community. We have these names listed. This is a community affair commitment. And modern day, like, I'm trying to think of what this would even look like. Like, I think of New Year's resolutions. Sometimes, um, like, I think my dad has probably done a New Year's resolution where he says, you know, I'll do this all year, and if I don't, 10 bucks to every kid because that's going to motivate me to stay on track to do this. Um, you know, some of you have endeavored uh, with me. Um, who here is behind on the 90-day read-through? I'm a little behind. Oh, I really wish everyone raised their hand, because that made me feel better. That's okay. That's like two people. I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> All right. Um, no, so a lot of you endeavored to read through the Bible in 90 days. Like, if you've endeavored to read through the Bible or any book or any amount of books in a whole year, uh, props to you, because reading's hard. But here's the thing. To go that extra measure to solemnly promise under oath, under curse, I mean, that's a whole different level. That's not a New Year's resolution with five bucks riding on it. That's asking for punishment and disaster to come upon you should you not commit all the way through. Let's look at verses, uh, I want to look at the pledges with you guys, kind of the, the, the individual pledges that we're going to look at now. So starting in verse 30, verse 30 we have the first pledge. We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land, not to let our sons marry their daughters. I'll pause for a moment. They were surrounded at this time by, you know, different people groups who believed and followed uh, different ways, not God. They worshipped other gods. And so this wasn't um, necessarily a discrimination against who they were. This wasn't a, really a race thing or a different tribe thing. This was, this was solely a uh, religious thing. We're committed to God. Therefore, we will serve our God and our God alone. 
In other words, we're not going to mix with those who do not. Secondly, verse 32, the second commitment, uh, sorry, verse 31, we also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. Every seventh year, we will let, out our, our, we will let our land rest, in other words, not plant crops on it, and we will cancel all our debts owed to us. Okay. So in the Old Testament, there's also the, the year of Jubilee. I always kind of thought it was seven. It's actually every 50 years, every seventh, seventh. Um, but, but what the commitment they're making is, um, in the business world, we would consider like a, a bad business move, bad money move. Okay? On the Sabbath, they're committing not to trade, not to purchase. In other words, um, if, if, if your uh, way of life is planting... Um, corn. And one of those days that everyone else comes and buys and trades corn, you're saying, I'm not going to. That's, I mean, that's, you know, potentially one of the big days uh, to sell and trade and make money. That takes some guts, truthfully. They have conviction for some reason not to do so. Okay, and what else, even further, I think this is super interesting. I was reading in Deuteronomy about this forgiving of debt. And in this forgiving of debt, uh, I thought to myself, well, if at that certain year they would have to forgive uh, people who owed them money, in other words, you don't owe me any money. If you haven't paid off your money by the end of the year, it's okay. You're done. In the year of Jubilee, slaves would go free. Debts would be forgiven. So in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, at least for the debt part, like, I'm not going to lend anyone any money once I know this year's coming around. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, uh, you want, like, if my brother comes up to me for cash, I'm saying, you're going to make the payments? Probably not. Um, I'm not going to lend it to you, because by the end of the year, you're going to go off the hitch free. <laughs> um, but I was reading Deuteronomy, because I'm like, I'm not the only one who thought about this. And, and actually, it says, basically, Israel was... God's people were meant to take care of each other, and God wanted them to provide for each other uh, on even fiscal levels, financially. If anyone was in need, they were to address those needs and give them so that they wouldn't be in need. And so, it also doubled down, it literally said in there, it, it is sinful if you know it's the year where you're going to be having to forgive those debts, it would be sinful to withhold so they understand this. They understand the law and these regulations they're placing themselves under, yet they're making these commitments, these solemn vows. 32 and 33. In addition, we promise to obey the command to pay the annual tax, temple tax, one-eighth of an ounce of silver, for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of, pre of the presence the regular grain offerings, the burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, the new moon celebrations, the annual festivals, for the holy offerings, and for the, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. It will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. Uh, previously, what had happened is uh, no one would tithe, no one would give, no one would uh, support what was going on in the temple, and so the 
priests, the Levites who were kind of in charge of running these things and, and, um, and running the temple, they, they had to go to work. So they had to leave the temple and, and things were shutting down because the community really had walked away. Eh, we got better stuff to do. This committing of, of temple taxes and, and them writing their names and vowing to do so was to say, uh, I guess in our context we would say, it's to make sure that the church functions, that we're going to support them. Because we believe um, yeah, that's where they met God. So going on now, buckle in, we're going to read a chunk, uh, 34 through 39. Kind of dealing with the first fruits. 34, we have cast sacred lots to determine when a regular time each year. Uh, the families of the priests, Levites, and the common people should bring wood uh, for God's temple to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. So they wanted to make sure there was a constant supply of wood, and they were scheduling people uh, to do so. These are just menial tasks that need to get done, but if you don't commit as a community to get them done, then no one's going to get them done. That's what they're doing. We promise to bring the first part of every harvest to the Lord's temple year after year. Whether it be a crop from the soil or from our fruit trees, we agree to give God our oldest sons and the firstborns of all our herds and flocks as prescribed in the law. We will present them to the priests who minister in the temple of our God. We will store the produce in the storerooms of the temple of our God, we will bring the best of our flour and other grain offerings, the best of our fruit, and the best of our new wine and olive oil. And we promise to bring the Levites a tenth of everything our land produces, for it is the Levites who collect the, the tithes in all our rural towns. A priest, a descendant of Aaron, will be with the Levites as they receive these tithes. A tenth of all that is collected as tithes will be delivered by the Levites to the temple of our God and placed in the storerooms. The people and the Levites must bring these offerings of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms and place them in the sacred containers near the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, the singers. And then listen to this. We promise together not to neglect the temple of our Lord. That's a vow. That's a commitment right there. And a pretty, pretty big endeavor to undergo as a community. This idea of first fruits and bringing um, our firsts to dedicate to the Lord, to the temple. It, this, is, this is, as we see in, in the Old Testament, if we had more time to study, we could maybe go into more of the meaning and the significance behind this. Uh, but for what our purposes are today, uh, really what this is doing is it's showing us that Israel is committed. They're committing to rely on God, say, we trust you, God. Like that song we just sang, we trust you completely. That, those firsts are best. Like I'm sure if I'm trying to get in their heads, like I'm sure that kind of, that kind of hurts a little bit. I mean, you put in hard work to raise your flock. You put in hard work to um, grow these uh, grains. 
your new wine, your first fruits, your firstborn sons being dedicated to the work, all these things. Like maybe we think of them like, oh, that's not, you know, it's not a part of my life, so I don't know, understand how they're... Like think about, think about taking your uh, annual salary, your budget, and saying I'm committing, like first thing on my budget line, I'm going to select that and, and whether it's whatever percent you decide, I'm going to give this portion to the Lord. That's my first priority. That right there tells me that you trust in God for everything that you have. And it's kind of like, I, I, go, we, I think we all go through this maybe argument in our head. Like, I'm only here breathing and talking because of him, and so are you. Yet we, we seem to have this ownership, this tight hold on things that we worked for. Does God deserve our best, our first? I think so. Uh, so, so what do we do with these pledges? Um, I mean, this is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and, and I want to point out in verse 30 when it talks about these mixed marriages, Paul in, in 1 Corinthians later kind of, he lays out, this is, this is not one of those things in the Old Testament that carries over, this intermarriage being a no that's okay. But some of the principles from the other ones, we, we kind of do carry over. The, the Sabbath, the day of rest to keep it holy, supporting the church, Christ's bride, giving our best to him through tithes, through our labor, through our time, serving others because we love God's word and we love his Son. So what do we do with these pledges? And, and the question I like to ask sometimes is, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? In other words, is this passage and these pledges, is it, is it prescribing what we ought to do today? And that gets tricky when we get into the Old Testament because it's a different time. We're in the new covenant relationship now. Um, and then the other question, or, or is it descriptive? Is it just describing what was common that day? Uh, is it describing kind of what they were supposed to do but has nothing to do with us? And I think it's hard to make a black and white distinction right down the middle to say yes or no. So I'm going to say maybe it is a little bit prescriptive. And kind of, let, let me illustrate a little bit. Um, and I want to share some passages that I would say kind of illustrate what I'm, what I'm about to say. So let me just get to those. As they are dedicating these things, it goes back to our question, what, is God truly desi- what God truly desires of us? For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51.16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Interesting. Isn't that what they're committing to do? Uh, Psalm 46-8, In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law 
is within my heart. So, so what that tells me, and if we're trying to still answer that question, what does God really desire of us, there's probably a lot of different ways we could go about that, but for our text today, the way I see it is it's kind of twofold. It's kind of twofold with a caveat. And the first is, what does God desire of us? Relationship. He wants us to know him. He wants to be known by us. He wants relationship with us. And ironically, this actually might take some action on our part. To know God might not just be sitting uh, and idly doing nothing. Like you actually might have to uh, wake up before work, if that's the only time you have, and get into his word and read about who he is to get to know him. You might actually have to start spending time with other people, maybe in church or other Christians that know him to understand who he is. You might actually have to step into a role where you are serving other people because it's a crazy thing what happens when we serve and love on others. We start to understand a little bit about who God is. We're made in his image. These attributes that we have, they're from him. What does God truly desire of us? It's relationship. But like I said, it's twofold. And I would say, for the text that we're in right now, it seems obvious, too, that God also desires some action, some genuine repentance. And I would say genuine repentance, we know it's probably genuine if there is action that follows. We're not just saying, I'm sorry. I'm not just holding my brother's head and his, his big welt on his eye that I made and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but no action follows. If I just took the BB gun out and shot him in the head again, like, uh, he's got two welts now. He's got three welts. Like, my actions are not uh, lining up with what I'm saying. Um, so I'd say put your money where your mouth is. Um, genuine repentance, I think it, we typically see it, it's followed by action. I think God wants both. One commentator stated, uh, I was reading it, said, neither Old or New Testament has any place for confessions of faith that leave lifestyle and practices unaffected. And what we saw in the chapters previously with Chris last week was as they were sitting under God's word, as they were receiving teaching, something was stirring up inside of them. And it caused change. And so as I'm sitting there at the campfire and I'm seeing my friend get up and, and repent and dedicate her life to Christ, I'm kind of sitting there wondering, maybe like you might be, is there action on my part that I, I do I need to start committing? Am I just idly standing here? And I know who God is. But I haven't really committed anything to him. I'm not really living for him. So, as we close, I want to close with a passage that kind of describes and talks about um, our relationship with our Creator. And it's kind of depicted well, I think, in, in John 15. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
that caveat is the fact that this doing, we really realize it's, it's knowing God and realizing we are connected uh, to him by knowing him. And anything good that comes from us is because of his doing. Any blessing in our life is because of him. Uh, any uh, help that we give others, it's, it's all glory to him. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then skipping down to another verse, it says, uh, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I say to you, go and bear fruit, knowing God and acting upon it.